Welcome to Down to Zero, a series where we talk to game-changing climate entrepreneurs, innovators and investors about their journey into climate and where the sector is headed. We're your hosts, Shanice Mohinani and Florian Dahlhausen. Today, we're speaking about climate change adaptation with Andrew Engler, co-founder and CEO of Kettle. In this conversation, we'll be talking about how artificial intelligence and machine learning can help us better predict and mitigate the devastating financial impact of wildfires and other extreme weather events through reinsurance. And now, enjoy episode four of Down to Zero with Andrew Engler. Andrew, let's kick off with some rapid-fire questions. Who inspires you in the climate ecosystem? I'd have to say that's an easy one. Uh, Pierre Gentin uh, at Columbia. We're lucky enough to have him as an advisor, but absolutely brilliant mind in, in kind of melding machine learning with climate. Cool. Your favorite climate book? Uh, this will be a little bit of a curveball, uh, both because we're insurance focused, but there's a great book called Against the Gods, um, which is basically the history of risk. And it's incredibly humbling to see how much of human civilization is driven by risk and obviously attached to that climate. And what is the single most important technology besides your own that you think will save the climate? Uh, for our specific problems in, uh, in California, absolutely love our, our partners at Gridware. Um, they're a hardware device that attaches to telephone poles and can do a phenomenally uh, good job at, at predicting when they'll fault or have heart rot or, you know, cause spark or stuff like that. So uh, big, big props to the team there. Wonderful. Welcome to Down to Zero, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Of course. First question's an easy one. People know you and Kettle as the Wild Firefighter, which is an awesome nickname. But prior to this, you were an insurance veteran, spending over a decade in the industry before starting the company. Tell us more about your personal journey and what inspired you to work on climate and start Kettle. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's a pretty insane journey. Um, I, I grew up loving computers and basically just being a, a closet hacker, which just meant breaking my dad's computer and trying to fix it afterwards, trying to make some video games. But uh, after college, yeah, I, I was looking to go in, into law school or something like that and figured I would make some money first and ended up at an Allstate agency. Then from the day I started working there, I realized, my God, this is probably the most backwards industry I've ever seen in my life. Uh, people are just cold calling off of lists and you know, basically picking up the phone, asking people if they want a product that no one ever wants to buy. Um, and when you actually zoom out, it's probably one of the most important products um, that that runs our society. It allows for trust. It allows for indemnification. They call it for people to recover when something bad happens. It basically just handles all of our, our worst case fears from happening. And so, uh, yeah, it helped build uh, the second largest agency or build that agency that the second largest one in California, um, then ran the commercial book of business in the state of Arizona. Help build on like voting platform at Allstate. Um, and then the, the latter part was spent um, at Argo Group, uh, founding and building the digital division there. Um, and really with, with the final three years that living out in Bermuda, focused in the reinsurance industry, which a lot of people don't know. It's insurance for insurance companies. Um, and it is this absolutely incredible industry where their entire job is to insure insurance companies against tail risk, horrible catastrophic events that happen. Hurricane, terrorism, wildfire, earthquakes, these things that happen very infrequently, but happen very severely. Um, and so as I got deeper and deeper into that, I realized that there was a massive hole, but also opportunity uh, in terms of understanding how this, this industry could, one, not only advance itself and be able to price risk correctly um, through more advanced quantitative and mathematical strategies and, and larger asymmetric resources, but also um, kind of play this pivotal role going forward where we see climate um, 
really causing a lot of volatility in the world. They are essentially the last line of defense against. They're the people when your house blows away in Hurricane Ian, um, they're the ones who pay the bill to essentially rebuild it. So critical for it to function and not fail. That's incredible. And I guess uh, it is much needed right now because over the last 10 years, billion dollar climate catastrophes have tripled. We've had a trillion dollar in total losses. And there's this massive decades old insurance and reinsurance industry. And I would love to understand more. Why is your new approach required and why do we need it now? Yeah. So, I mean, if you look historically, m most of insurance and reinsurance as a whole is done off stochastic model. So what you do is you essentially say, I'm going to take the past 100 years. If you take wildfire, for example, how many times did wildfire hit uh, Beverly Hills in the past, you know, 100 years? Well, it happened twice. So you would essentially price that risk as if, you know, a one in 50. It, it happens once or, or twice every 100 years. That is obviously incredibly wrong going forward because there's been a dramatic change in at least the underlying scientific um, and more eco-driven factors that cause wildfires to propagate, and, and specifically um, what will we call a conflagration, a wildfire that's huge, massive, you know, burns more than a thousand acres. I mean, and also driving that is multitude of anthropogenic features, people living in areas that they shouldn't, and, and you know, causing fires in areas that, that we never experienced before. But when you look at it, that model starts to break down significantly if you have increased volatility that you haven't seen historically. And obviously, California and all the world has been around for longer than 100 years. So you have huge data that you can't capture. So bringing in more advanced quantitative strategies like machine learning, deep learning, or, or whether it be more advanced type statistics to one, start at the ground level and say, let's grab as much information as possible that's out there that's not being used. So instead of just events that's of like, where did a wildfire happen? Give me the perimeter. Start to take in everything that NASA can offer. MODIS, LINAR, Landsat, Sentinel, Terra, um, grabbing NDVI, grabbing moisture, uh, grabbing vapor pressure deficit, so brush, vegetation, elevation, everything you can imagine. And also the anthropogenic satellite imagery thing, where towns where people live with concentration of people, uh, and once you get all that data organized and, and put together, you can start to have a far better idea of what um, is most likely to happen in the future. You can't perfectly predict, obviously, and we never will be able to say, oh, you know, fire is going to start here next year. But what we found is that, you know, generally, if you're talking about wildfire or flood, you know, and, and hurricane, which we're heading into, the the industry and actually the world as a whole has generally had the natural reaction when something changes dramatically and lots of money starting to flow out and be lost, there is huge reaction to pull out of that completely and just say, okay, we don't understand it completely. Let's just pull all the capacity and protection we have for people because we just can't price it correctly. So when you look at the way that California was being modeled, you know, even a few years ago, the models were essentially spinning out that like 70% of the seat was at wildfire danger. Which, obviously, if you do the back of the envelope math and you look and you say, well, okay, 4% of the state burns in any given year, like 2017, like the worst year, that there's something misaligned with that. So I need the correct amount of data to understand how bad it is and where areas are going to get worse and where it's actually been measured um, overly conservative and be able to provide coverage in all of those areas with the accurate price. Otherwise, that whole system breaks down um, in its entirety. It's fascinating to hear about the non-traditional data sources that you've been able to use to price this risk. I want to dive deeper into the technology. So you're using cutting edge technology and computer vision, machine learning, 
high-res simulations, things that are all buzzwords in Silicon Valley today, to predict wildfires with over 89% accuracy. How do you do it? Can you walk us through the technology in more detail? Yeah, for sure. Well, how I do it is one, hire an entire team that is wildly smarter than me. Um, And I am lucky to to get to work with every member of our team. And and that's all of them know. I'm probably the the poorest engineer um, out of the team. But, you know, when you look at it, I'll walk you through the journey um, because it is like a a funny one. You know, meeting my other co-founder, Nat, who's been in in, uh, for climate specific space and that's actually like government and that and, and crisis management response you know he had the huge background in flat of climate son and i who come from the insurance side are, are much more on like just technical insurance whether that be casualties to like insuring businesses and things like that so when we started it, it it was really kind of taking um a lot of groundbreaking ideas that work incredibly well in areas where there's very low signal to noise ratio we actually started experimenting in chaos theory-driven fields of, of machine learning. So things like particle swarm optimization um, and, and more advanced methodology where you're trying to understand an underlying chaotic system and just be able to produce and tease out a few key variables that give you some sort of alpha and understanding like more than everyone else where these events are more likely to happen. And you know, what, one thing that's important that we do here, one, and everyone on the team will, will express all models are wrong. Our model is wrong. It's just a question of how wrong your model is compared to like all others and being confident inside of that lost error function of like how wrong it can be. So we, we don't really try and say, oh, we think the most advanced complex model will work. Sometimes it's as simple as a linear regression um, and it's linear regression on a couple of features for this one specific area. The key to that is, can you actually take the universe of available tools and find out what tool is best? Is it in fact the more advanced, um, you know, gradient boosting, extreme gradient boosting neural network that is working for this part of NOMA and that? So if you just look at the structure, it really works that we use AWS for everything in the back end. We're pulling in all of these um, in, in an automated ETL, formatting the data. We break down the state into 420,000 separate one kilometer square grids. We take each of those grids, then we model each of the grids off of basic historical fires coming from MCBS other wildfire sources, we then map all those variables down to that one kilometer level. And then we start running a massive simulation scheme that looks a lot like a Markov simulation over time. Um, start to add into stuff like particle swarm optimization for like pricing around it. But the idea is you want to understand not where one grid is dangerous because yeah, one grid can light on fire, but that doesn't cause what does all the damage, which is like a million acre wildfire that burns like controllably. And so the key is if you can start to capture all of these surrounding grids, understand how this event compounds in, in sort of a, a domino effect using each of those features that are teased out from a multitude of separate ensemble models that work together after you after you kind of push them past the, the AWS layer into like our modeling suite and platform. It allows us to output a, a more simplistic number at the end of the day, which can give us a price and a probability for what's going to burn and be able to actively write this. That's fascinating to hear about the technology. Every time I've read about Kettle, it's always referenced the secret sauce that you have in terms of the swarm neural networks. So it's fascinating to be able to understand that more deeply. Now that we've discussed the technology, help us understand your business model of providing reinsurance. 
Yeah, you know, it, it's a unique business model. Um, we're not a SaaS company, and, and we've generally stayed away from that just because the market cap size isn't that big. And it also, you know, the industry is kind of at where it is right now because they outsourced all their modeling to, to other people. And so you create an agency bias in that. Um, our model is very much, we, we have two separate sides. We have our own balance sheet that we want to continue to grow and write on. So we actually write risk for ourselves. And then we have like third party risk capital that we go to other people for. So we work with all, you know, a bunch of major reinsurers. Um, you know, we work with ILS funds, people like that. And we essentially say, look, you know, they, they're getting out of wildfire because it's been unprofitable. They haven't been able to price it correctly and it's lost money. And we say, look, we're the experts inside of it. Let us write on your behalf. Let us rent your balance sheet, essentially, in the same way that a VC would go to an LP and say, let me rent your capital, borrow it, I'll put it and deploy it and make a return for you that's above what you could do yourself. Um, and that has been our primary model right now, which is called an MGA and what we kind of call the second part of that, a, a micro reinsurer. Um, but that allows us essentially to write insurance or reinsurance. And we have three products um, where we either write these massive type of policies for insurance companies. So, um, you know, the, the major carriers you can imagine, the ones that have geckos and, 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 and yeah, friendly neighbors, um, all the way down to like smaller products that we actually write on a home by home basis, like a wildfire access only for high value homeowners that. Essentially, you know, very simple products that if these homes are destroyed by wildfires, there are a couple of parametric ones you have to see where if a wildfire hits the grid, they automatically trigger and pay out. That's great to understand. And I think especially relevant today because we're hearing stories about how homeowners who used to pay about $2,000 a year for coverage in California, that's going up three times to three times that price. So I'm curious to know, how does your model help reduce premiums for the end consumer, people who actually own homes here? Yeah. So look, it, if you look at the wider vision on, on what, what I'd say, a thousand year vision of, of what Kettle can be, um, it is a chain. And that chain is three simple parts. You have to be able to analyze and understand risk better than anyone else. You have to be able to transfer it correctly. So to your point, what's happening is if you can't transfer it and distribute the risk correctly, then what happens is the price skyrockets because it's the only way single entities can take on that much risk in like a single location. And the final one is mitigation. Uh, and so you take those three steps and you go, well, those are actually broken apart between like FEMA and insurance companies and Fire and all that. Kettle has this unique opportunity where you can say, look, there are a certain number of homes that should not be where they are, whether it's on the coast, whether it's in the middle of wildfire regions, whatever. It it's just not unless someone wants to pay an exorbitant amount of insurance, like it's just not financially viable. That said, that is not the vast, vast majority of risks out there. And so as you look at it, what we need to do, one, is accurately identify the risks that are overweighting a portfolio and causing where people are subsidizing an unsustainable risk. Okay, once you understand those, that's fine. And those people can find coverage in like California Fair Plan. The other thing is to start to measure risk in its correct uh, volatility level. So which homes really will burn every five years? Which ones will burn every 20 years? Which ones will burn every 100 years? And that starts to allow you to price it correctly according to the risk and build a portfolio where people support each other and are paying like the accurate amount of premium relative to the risk they're bringing into the portfolio and then you're distributing it. So you're not getting just single shocks where like, oh, we ride every home in Beverly Hills and if Beverly Hills burns down, it's like you are toast and you're going to like capsize a couple other companies as well. Um, so as you start to spread out that risk, great. Now you can, one, lower the price of people who actually don't have as much risk. 
the other time too, as you're making that corporate profit, generally that corporate profit, you know, kind of just goes in the balance sheets, wherever it is. We look at that model and go, you can make incredible corporate profit like most insurance companies. You can actually redeploy it into the mitigation efforts. And that's where I kind of see the, the, the climate side is a true, like kind of beautiful circle. If people who are paying the premiums that are in dangerous areas actually are able to take a company that has that money and then redeploy it into companies like BurnBot, you know, autonomous uh, burning drugs that burn through fields and create um, bioperimeters, um, all the way to things like gridware. Uh, you create this perfect ecosystem where people are paying premiums into something that mitigates it and you actually lower the risk over time, which allows you to write more and more risk. And so having that three-step phase is, is an all-encompassing and it's a, a big mission. But I, I think, you know, as crazy as it sounds, we can look at the same way with NASA. Um, NASA back in the 1960s, you know, they used to obviously outsource the, the Lockheed Martin and people like that, but they were the center hub where everything came together and you had the building of the rocket, the launching of it, uh, the health of the astronauts and everything. But it's actually shifting more towards a, a center point of SpaceX now. And we look at that the same way as FEMA, like FEMA has this massive job to come up and, you know, recover everything after and then try and change it. And we think that, you know, it, from an organizational perspective, the people who are paying premiums into insurance, you could dramatically increase the profitability and dramatically reduce the price of it, actually, if that same person was incentivized to actually stop the risk from happening in the first place. And so, yeah, that, that's kind of our future vision, the way we look at it. That's really exciting to hear. It leads uh, right into the next question. I would love to understand a bit more around what you see Kettle's uh, role to be in that vision and that ecosystem that you have just described, for instance, when it comes to the mitigation approach. Yeah, so I, I, I view that in the next couple of years, like that, we will be the ones deploying it. We will be the ones paying for it. It will come directly out of the premiums we are receiving. Um, and, and I'd almost look at it, you know, that our dream would be to be the center point of all of it. So in the same way that SpaceX is NASA, we want to be the same way to, to FEMA. So basically, you are first the person who's able to transfer the risk and give someone insurance. Second, you are the safety net. When something goes wrong, that person gets paid back and indemnified, like they are made whole again. And then third, you are using the money and profit that you have to actually go back in and say, okay, we could create a fire break here and actually insure it. So you have to have a center point entity that is incentivized to, oh, well, bad dad joke, burn money on, on potentially like burn money on like mitigation efforts that they might be expensive and you might not know their true like effectiveness up front. But if you're the one receiving the premiums, it's all related. You you are incentivizing yourself for good behavior. Um, and so I, it's very easy for us to break down that step though. You can't do any of that unless you can analyze the risk better than anyone else can understand. Uh, otherwise, you're just going to do it randomly and it's not going to be optimal. You can't really scale it. So that that's really where we started. And now we're kind of in the second part of transferring that risk and, and that'll be in the third portion that the mitigation that's really exciting to hear and um one question that we've been wondering about is how does this relate to just wildfire or a bigger vision what we've seen often is that some startups face this trade-off between building really deep knowledge in one domain area such as wildfire or flooding or really building this broad platform that you seem to describe that can predict a lot of long tail events and then really act on that how do you think about that trade-off at cattle yeah look you know Opportunity cost is, is a serious thing uh, for any startup. And, and I'd say we always started the company with the larger vision and, and thesis or, or hypothesis that what we are experiencing today is not, um, it, it is, 
is a increase in the volatility and severity of events across the board. And the reason it's looking worse than it has in modern history is because we don't have a very set up, a very well set system of understanding the true volatility and severity of, of these events. So whether it be a pandemic, whether it be a terrorism event, whether it be hurricane, earthquake, wildfire, we currently have a, have a poor judgment and understanding, will that happen once every five years or will that happen once every 5,000 years? And so when you have that volatility across the board and across the world, what happens is you start to stagnate human evolution and civilization advancement. So what we're looking at is, okay, there is a mass set of unorganized data that is a goldmine. And it is correlated in multiple ways that we currently don't allow us to correlate or see that correlation because it's just done separately, whether it is the home prices and the coast of Florida and the home prices in California and how those are relatively connected for a single bank that ranks mortgages of Freddie and Fannie. Uh, and then hurricanes and wildfires and how the precipitation, ocean temperatures affect both of those. So what we're trying to do is build this entire, what I'd call more of a platform and an engine for sucking up that information, organizing it, and then starting to see a larger picture of where true volatility and unsustainable factors are happening and where it actually is sustainable and, and is just... Um, a, a simple inability to actually write this stuff in a profitable manner and, and needs to be like pulled back. That's fascinating and I've loved hearing about your vision for the business. I'd love to take a step back and think about the ecosystem of climate tech and AI. In which areas within this intersection would you like to see more innovation? And the more difficult part of that question, in what areas of this intersection does it seem crowded to you? That's a good one. I mean, look, climate as a whole, I, I find it to be this absolutely beautiful thing because well, it could be a very beautiful thing. Uh, and it's mostly because we, we experience these as like a, a, a human race or civilization multiple times in the past few hundred thousand years. And, it, and it's these large events that actually like, there is no like, that enemy is basically like a hurricane does not care if you are rich or poor or where you come from or whether you want it to end or not is just indiscriminately going to blow somewhere and destroy that area and so while we see a lot of conflict today in in terms of whether it be political or whether it be societal and like oh you know even just arguing whether it's real or not it, it's almost this perfect point in time where you could say doesn't matter what what your view is specifically we all know that it's happening happening a bit more we may not be able to understand why it's happening more but we can absolutely understand like how you start mitigating it and actually pricing it like making it sustainable whether we can change it or not and that's always like kind of the position we come from is there any way to change the climate i i don't know personally but i know that you have to be able to like indemnify and like protect people against it and so when i look at the whole ecosystem of like where it's exciting i mean you you can look at Back in the 1960s, they were doing phenomenal stuff, um, operation like Stormfront and that, where U.S. military was taking planes and like dropping uh, certain types of chemicals in the air, you know, good or not, to try and like decrease the intensity of, of tornadoes. A couple companies in Norway, one interesting one that's using these massive pipes to like pump up cold water from the bottom of the ocean up to the top to try and decrease surface temperature, which would decrease like a hurricane's um, uh, destructive nature. And so I, I see these like really cool hardware pieces 
um, that are really starting to form up that need a lot of support, need a lot of capital, frankly. And it, it's in everyone's best interest to try and figure these out. And so it, it, that's where I like really look positively. And then if I say like an oversaturated part, um, yeah, I mean, it's just such a big problem. Like, and then there's so much to handle that like, no, I, I don't think there's anything that's oversaturated uh, here at this point. Like it, it's all green pasture as I'm sure you, you guys see on your end. Um, and that's why we're never even worried about competition. As we say, there could be 10 more of us and there's still, you know, there's $500 billion worth of capital running through green. Yeah. Someone has to be able to take it and transfer it and move it along and price it correctly. So yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say there's anywhere I really see that's like, oh, that's over and down with it. Cool. If you had a magic wand, Andrew, what technology, regulatory or systems change would you wish for within the climate tech ecosystem or as it applies to cattle in that ecosystem? Oh, God. Um, man, man, that's putting it on the spot. Um, I, I would say more from a position of just kind of the loss of, of uh people having differences of opinions on, on the, the whole entire event and just realizing like again wildfires they just don't care like they hit Malibu the same way they hit camp and and, and a place that that is um orders of magnitude um less built up and protected and and at least price per square foot on it so I think you look historically in in you know Spanish flu or things like that like major world events um major volcanic happenings and things like that going way back uh you you have a very different sentiment on everyone just going like oh god like we better figure this out or it might be yeah and it doesn't really matter why how it's caused like you just have to fix it like um that, that i'd say is that the magic wand we have it aside from that too i'd also love like five billion dollars to magically appear and then we could write on our own balance sheet completely on it but uh we, we'll, we'll get there that's great. And maybe some other climate tech entrepreneurs in the space can give you those $5 billion at some point. We don't know. But what advice would you give to people who are just starting out in the space as an entrepreneur within climate tech? Yeah, I mean, look, from a, a pure entrepreneur, like personal side startup, um, one, every I know it's very common for people to say like, oh, this is the dangerous side of business. Do you want a stable job? Um, if you're the type of person who has a high level of confidence in like your execution and what you can do, um, it's actually happening. Yeah, there's a lot of stress to do it, and, and there's a lot going on on a daily basis. But the ability to control what you do and and how your future rolls out, whether it be good or bad, when it's 100% on you, it's just a different feeling. Um, the other thing I'd say is like it definitely takes an army. Like it, it, we have so many incredible partners and people that have helped us along the way. And and what I've found to be one of the greatest experiences. Anyone who's interested, reach out to me call me, I will introduce you to anyone or everyone just because people did the same to me. Uh, but it is a very great ecosystem to be in of people trying to help each other. And, and I just say, yeah, you know, go after the scary stuff. Um, it, it, if it seems harder than it ends up being more interesting, it, it might turn you off at first and, and make you a little more scared if you're trying to, you know, tackle some big major mission, like, I don't know, flying planes in the middle of hurricanes to try and decrease their, their severity. But um, that that's the type of stuff that gets people excited, and and that's what we've noticed on our end. And then having a very realistic view of where you are in that journey and how to execute the next ten steps, because it's always going to be a thousand things to do every single day. Um, the only difference between the, the startups I think that make it and that don't are the ones that can go. Yep, 
a thousand things. I can only do 10 a day. Where are the 10? I'm going to knock them out. I'm just going to keep going. And I'm going to unrealistically just keep going until the bank account dry or, you know, dead. Uh, keep it as simple as that. Yeah, I love the notion of we got to keep going and also that of paying it forward. We see that so much in the climate ecosystem and it's great to see people pulling each other up. Uh, what I'm taking away from our conversation today is really a newfound appreciation for insurance and the role that it has to play in the climate adaptation space. So to the extent that we can use more and better data to accurately predict these extreme weather events that can really push the ecosystem forward and protect us uh, as we navigate the effects of climate. Thank you so much for joining us today, Andrew. Yeah, thank you guys. Really appreciate it. It's great. Join us next time as we speak to another game-changing entrepreneur, innovator, or investor who is working to get us down to zero.